Well, today we're going to continue focusing upon what it really does all come down to. What does the Lord require of you? Think about that question uh, as we begin today. Um, I also want us to uh, echo what uh, Scott had prayed as well. Uh, we need to continue to remember uh, Pastor David. Uh, we're thankful for his leadership here. We need to make sure that uh, we come around him. I think that's important for churches. Um, just This is obviously just a side comment, but um, this is a tough time on pastors. And so to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to lift up my pastor and really, really encourage him at this time. Uh, ask that God might speak to his heart. Uh, that's your task. That's your job as the church. So often we think about what the pastor can come and give us. Well, there's times that you need to be able to come and give and support and uplift your pastor. So I encourage you, spend some time this week uh, praying that there might be uh, a real revival in the spirit of, of David as he comes back and you all get ready for the fall. Um, today we're going to continue looking at this concept that Micah gives to us in uh, chapter 6, verse 8. And once again, as we think about those words, I want you to, to, to hear just that one verse. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is, once again, as we talked about last week, is Micah speaking the words of God to the people. And it says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That ought to perk your ears up whenever you hear, what does the Lord require of you? Here's the big stuff. Get this right. Let's ask the Lord to be with us. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We take this scripture, Lord, that you have provided thousands and thousands of years ago to your people. And Lord, your requirements don't change. You are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, I pray that even though we might have parts of ourselves, our beings, that want to kick against some of this, help us to recognize that you are calling us to live in a higher way, not in a way of the flesh, but in a way of the Spirit, God. And I pray, O oh God, that today you would take these words and not only help us to hear them, but help us to apply them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I think it's probably always been true, but I know it's really true today, is that so often we will take words like this and we have a filter that we are starting to see everything through. And for most of us, it's a political filter. You know, we begin to, to filter things through, well, wh wh what do we think politically? How do we kind of stand on all these different kinds of issues? And in fact, as I look at even in American politics, when we think about this verse, it gets utilized in very different ways by both the left and the right. You know, sometimes we'll, you'll hear that, that especially that, that concept of acting justly. And so sometimes those who maybe have the filter of looking at, at the scriptures through a political lens from the left will talk about the fact that we haven't seen very much justice in our world. 
And so we need to make sure that we go out and we provide justice for lots of different kinds of groups. It might be groups that are racially based or it might be groups that are class based. And right now we're talking all different kinds of things about gender. And so we look at a scripture like this and say, aha, this is what I can use to, in essence, beat up those on the right. And sometimes those on the right will hear, act justly. And they will begin to get in their minds this concept perhaps of, you know, we don't have enough justice in our world. We don't take offenders and punish them like we should. We've got too much criminality in our world. What about the rioters and the looters and folks like that? There ought to be justice that comes in those cases. Now, there's an element of truth if we were to break it down in kind of both of those concepts. But if you think that that's what Micah and the Lord himself, more importantly, is talking about, you've missed the boat. You haven't really grasped how we are called to interpret this scripture. And so one of the things that we have to do, not only with this scripture, but whenever we open the Bible, is attempt to take off a lot of our different lenses that we have, and particularly our political lenses. We need to take those off and simply say, in its rawest form, what was the Lord saying to his people long ago? And then how does that apply to me here in this place today? And so as we begin to think about these particular words from Micah, I want you, if you were here last week or maybe you were listening online, begin once again to get the, the, the vision of what was really taking place at that time. The Lord came to Micah and said, Micah, I need an audience for my words that I'm about to share. Why don't you go get some mountains and hills to come on in and listen to what I want to have said. And so Micah speaks to the mountain and hills and says, come on in. The Lord has something he wants to say to his people. And then as they gather, so to speak, the people are there. Micah begins to, this disputation, he begins to speak to, to them and says, the Lord has something against you. He has against you the fact that sometimes you follow him, but much of the time you're doing things your own way. You're following other gods. You're only caring about yourselves. And so the people actually hear that. And they respond and they say, you're, you're, you're right, we need to make more sacrifices, we need to, to uh, uh, bring some animal offerings, or we need to bring in all kinds of oils and grains. We maybe even need to come and sacrifice our own kids, they say. How crazy is that? I think the Lord wants that. The Lord hears that talk of additional sacrifices, and he pushes it aside. And that's when he says, this is what I require of you. I don't really care about all your extra sacrifices. I require that you change the way you live. Now, as we think about what that means, I want us to break apart this and, and kind of break apart and then put back together these two concepts of acting justly and loving mercy. If you think that justice is only about punishment, you're going to get all of this scripture wrong. Because you're going to see it totally different than what is intended. Because as we begin to look at this issue of justice, we're not just talking about punishment. 
And, and, and if you think mercy is only about just letting people off the hook, like I'm going to be merciful to somebody, they, they, you know, they don't really deserve it, but I'm, this is what I'm going to do, so I'm going to let them off the hook, then you're missing the boat on that too. For we are called to act in a godly fashion in terms of what he considers justice and what he considers mercy. And so let's, let's take a moment and, and begin to kind of weed through this uh, and come up with what God is saying, not our own narrow views. Uh, when it comes to this issue of justice, I want you to think about it in this way, because I believe this is what the scriptures are saying to us. It's not about me or even God bringing punishment. It's about setting the world right. It's about making the world right the way that it should be. Well, you, you might look at the big, biggest picture and say, well, isn't justice really about, for instance, those who don't follow after God should get hell? I mean, isn't, isn't justice about the punishment that you get because you don't live the way that you should? And the reality is that's not true. As C.S. Lewis tells us, the, the very fact is that hell is closed from the inside. People have chosen that themselves. God is simply putting the world as we have decided that we wanted it to be. And so as we begin to think about this issue of justice in our world today, it's about helping to set things right. Last week I told you the story of a a little boy named Rupi that I worked with in Norwalk, Connecticut in an after-school program. Rupi is this hard-nosed kid, and I won't retell the whole story, but one day he ends up getting really, really mad in the midst of this after-school program. He flips over tables. He starts cussing um, at the other kids. I didn't know what was happening, so I, I kick him outside, and I go and try and deal with Rupi. Now, if I were to deal with him in purely a, thank you, in a justice fashion, then I would simply say, here, I'm going to apply the law in that manner. I'm going to take this law that says we don't flip over tables, we don't cuss at people, I'm going to put some punishment upon it, and I'm going to send Rupi back in, maybe he'll learn from that. But that's not setting the world right. So after I chased Rupi down the street, I knew that there was something more that was going on in his life. He needed justice. He needed somebody to come and help him to get past some of the stuff he was dealing with. In the end, he was being abused at home. In the end, he needed somebody to come alongside of him and to help this 10-year-old kid through this difficult time. In, in, in a sense, that is much greater justice, helping things become much better for this child at home because no child should ever have to live in fear. No child should ever have to live in squalor conditions. No child should ever be abused. And justice by others like us means helping to set those things right. And so for us to understand what justice means for us, think about 
how do I help set my world, the people in my world, into a better or right position? One of the things that gets talked about most often when it comes to biblical justice, and again, if we have our political lenses on, we might fight and kick against this, but I'm just here to tell you this is the Lord's word. Over 2,000 times, in 2,000 verses, there is a reference to the poor in the scriptures. Think about that. 2,000 verses in this book have a reference to the poor. In over 300 of those verses, God's people are told to do something about it, to show compassion, to provide a means of help, to engage with those who are poor. Now, I have to tell you, as a pastor, and I would say this is true of most of the pastors that that I know and that I hang out with, we failed in talking about that very often. Something that is such a huge issue to the Lord. We've kind of put it on the back burner because we felt like we had more important things to talk about and discuss. But if God thinks it's that important, then maybe we ought to engage and do something about it. Maybe there ought to be a sense that if in God's economy, so to speak, in the way God orders the world, if he is saying, my people, my church, is supposed to somehow be engaged in this issue, then we should not ignore it, but recognize we are called to find ways to act justly. And here I'm not, again, talking about politics. I'm talking about how do we do that in our daily lives in a one-on-one basis. Now, as we think about this important thing to God, not only are we here to talk about biblical justice, but we're also talking about how do we show mercy. You know, when I think about mercy, I, I, I automatically go to what, in many ways, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's the word karma. You know, when I, when I was growing up uh, as, a, as a young kid, I don't remember ever hearing that word, and I became a teenager, and it be, kind of became fashionable. You know, oh, you know, you're going to get karma, uh, or karma's going to take place. And I, I know it's, 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 it's a biblical uh, precept, or not biblical, it's a religious precept that, that uh, some folks in, in Hinduism or Buddhism, they, they cover. I'm not talking about necessarily that issue. I'm talking about how we uh, in Midwestern, as Midwestern teenagers in the 1980s talked about it. You know, you're going to get your due is really what it comes down to. You know, karma is about you're going to get what's coming to you. And mercy, then, is not that, obviously. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Mercy really is not getting what should be coming to you. There is a sense that if we are going to be people of mercy, we, once again, just like justice, we attempt to set the world on a better pathway, a what God would call a right pathway. 
And so mercy is helping people not simply get what is due them, but much more importantly, mercy is going to be something that God's people give because it's a reflection of who Jesus really is. In the book of James, it says these words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Not justice, but mercy does triumph over judgment. It's real easy to be judgmental of people. But the call of God's people is to be merciful. Now, what does that look like? That's kind of a bunch of you know, big language talking about justice and then talking about mercy. What, what does that really look like when played out? Well, let's look at a story, a biblical story. It comes from the New Testament of Jesus engaging in both justice and mercy. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of John, John chapter 8. And we're going to be reading a story here. And here in this particular uh, story, Jesus is doing what Jesus often did at that time. Uh, he was teaching. And so there would be all kinds of people gathered around him because when Jesus taught, people said, whoa, this is a guy who teaches with great wisdom. This is a guy who we want to come and, and hear and listen to. And so there are all kinds of people gathered around him. And just as the folks that gathered around him, even the common folk gathered around him, that then kind of caused those religious leaders, those religious elite to gather around him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, people that you've heard about if you've been in church uh, much, come and they are listening in too. And this is where John chapter 8 starts. It says there, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a question to trap, in, to, to trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to ride on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here we have Jesus caught in a situation. Obviously, it says there in the scriptures that these Pharisees are trying to trap him. They're trying to put him into a, a quandary where the people are going to not want to follow him anymore. Because he's either going to have to say when this woman who's been caught in adultery is dragged before him, he's either going to have to say, I ignore what Moses had to say. I ignore all these teachings that have come before. Or he's going to have to be one who simply 
comes and gives this woman mercy. And so if he's giving mercy and he ignores what has been said before, the people are going to be upset at that. But on the other hand, if he chooses not to give her mercy and follow and say, go ahead and stone her, the people aren't going to be happy with that either. And so they think we've got Jesus caught in this quandary. And Jesus gets out of it through using justice and mercy. Let's, let's look at it. Um, notice who's not in this story. <laughs> who's the person who doesn't show up here? The other party to the adultery, okay? Uh, the, the, the man is mentioned, he's never drug in there. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's an interesting fact of life. It's only this woman who has such low morals that she is caught and drug in. And so she is, if you can only imagine, you know, most of the people, there probably are some women gathered around, but most of the people gathered there are a whole bunch of guys that are listening into this. And according to kind of the tradition of the day, uh, uh, this, uh, obviously adultery is this horrible thing that, that they said, well, we, we, we've got to be able to show somebody their shame when they're caught in the midst of it. And so I don't know if this happened here, but the tr tradition of the day would be a woman who was caught in adultery would come, she would probably be stripped down to her waist, and then all these men would pronounce judgment upon her. So if you could imagine this woman coming, perhaps stripped down to her waist, cowering before all of these people because she's just been caught. That's the situation we are looking at here. Now, we, we're going to look at what Jesus did say, but notice the things he doesn't say to her. He immediately begins to get out of this trap that the Pharisees lay for him because he doesn't say guys, let's, let's just give her another chance. You know, let's just forget about all this uh, other stuff about Moses and, and righteousness. Let's just give her another chance. Or he doesn't say, well, let's just forget about her sin. It's really no big deal. He doesn't say, well, you know, Moses was just a bit legalistic. Let's, let's not worry about Moses. He doesn't say any of that because he's going to address this issue in a way where he not only is going to address this woman's sin, but he's going to address all of their sins. Now, I, I don't, when I preach, I don't often try and get into the different languages. Sometimes I think we can get lost in that. But it, here's an important point about one word that gets used here in this story. It's the word you might think it's the word justice or mercy or something else. No, it's, it's the word to write. Wait, well, why would to write mean? Did you, did you notice that two times in this story, seemingly a throwaway detail, that Jesus gets down and he begins to write? You know, when I always heard the story grew up, I just thought, well, he's, he's, he's just doodling in the dust until he has his chance. Or maybe he's, he's just somebody who's sitting there, you know, sometimes I have to pause to think about what I'm going to say. Maybe he's just trying to collect his thoughts. One of the interesting things, if it was either of those things or a myriad of other things, the scriptural writer would have chosen 
this word, kind of think of graphite pencils, he would have chosen the word graphene, which simply means to write anything. But he doesn't choose that word. In both of the instances where it's used to write, he chooses the word catagraphene. That's a Greek word that we translate to write. And catagraphene literally means to be able to write an accusation against another. So Jesus is bending on the ground and he is writing some accusations against another. Now, who might he be writing accusations against? We already know the woman's sin. It's already been stated there. He doesn't need to write that. So you tell me, who might he have been writing accusations against? The what? The accus- her accusers. I mean, that makes the absolute most sense in the context of this story, that Jesus is there bending down, perhaps writing, tells lies. Beats his wife. Perhaps murder. You could think of a myriad of other things that Jesus is writing there. And you might think, well, it, it, could that really be true? Could that be what's going on? Do you notice there's other one other kind of throwaway detail in the story that would make sense if Jesus is literally writing those accusations down? It says that when the people look upon him and he's bent down writing those things, what do they do with the stones in their hands? They drop them. And they begin to walk away one by one from the oldest, or the, you assume the most wise, to the youngest. Because they recognize we have no basis to stone this woman. It wouldn't be just in any kind of way for these men with all of their sins to come and then turn around and stone this woman. Jesus comes in the midst of the situation and actually brings some justice. Now, you might say, yeah, but she still sinned. In the end, Jesus is going to deal with that as well. For in the end, he is going to talk to her about being the kind of person who goes and sins no more. That's the call upon him. But it's not just to be able to say, I'm going to deal with your future sin. Jesus also is in a just fashion going to deal with this present sin. And how does he do that? Just a few short days later. He deals with it by going to Calvary's cross for that sin. That sin does have some repercussions. And that sin, the repercussions now become it being laid upon Jesus as he hangs upon Calvary's cross just as the sins of the whole world, including your sins, 
and my sins are laid upon him. And so now he has chosen to help set things the way they should be by dealing justly with this sin. But the opposite of justice isn't mercy. They go hand in hand. You can act justly as you also then act mercifully. Because Jesus obviously takes this woman and shows her mercy. So there's no one left to condemn you. And so I'm going to show you mercy because I'm the one person who could condemn you. I'm the one person who could come and use these stones against you. But I'm going to act mercifully and tell you, my daughter, that neither do I condemn you. That's how Jesus takes these two concepts from Micah and puts them together, justice and mercy. Now, I've got one last thing as we talk about this scripture to, to, to say, because it's real easy when you see those, the, 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 see Micah 6, 8, and you see that, that idea of acting justly and the idea of loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. It's real easy to, to focus upon the nouns or, or the adverbs there, like justly or mercy. But there's a part of scripture, two parts, that we sometimes forget. The first part is, what's the subject of each one of those sentences? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Go back to English class. What's the subject? You! You are the ones who are called to do that. Don't miss that part of the scripture. That's a big part. We can focus upon justice and mercy, but the big part is you are called to be the actor in it. Think, think about this concept of you acting justly. You now are also called to do not only the adverb, justly, I hope I'm getting my parts of the speech right, but you're supposed to do the verb. You're called to act. It'd be a, a horrible disservice to the Lord if we looked upon this verse or maybe even heard this, this teaching and said, Yes, that's right. That's what people should do. And then left this place to never act upon it. You are called to act justly. It doesn't mean go out and find people who are sinful and, and uh, somehow bring some sort of judgment or punishment upon them. That's, that's, not, your, that's not your place. But your place is to attempt to help to set things right, even with those people who have been sinful people. I think it's the next verb, though, that's the most difficult one. Micah, speaking the words of the Lord, perhaps could have said you should act mercifully or you should do mercy. And that would have been impactful. But where it hits me right in the face is that word love. You are called to love mercy. Now, 
I could love mercy when I hear a story about somebody who's done something, maybe even horrible in a far off place, and then somebody comes along and shows them mercy, and I'm like, that's awesome. I mean, we, we, we all kind of have that, that, feel, that feeling like, you know, there's, there, there's something awesome about something who's done the wrong thing, somebody shows them mercy, and, and good comes out of it. Uh, Les Miserables is a story built upon uh, that, that, that particular concept where a thief comes and he steals some stuff, a priest offers him mercy, and he has life change that comes about. I mean, those are good, feel-good stories. You know where loving mercy's hard? Is when the sin of somebody else has impacted you. That's where this concept, this verb, begins to get difficult. You mean I, I'm called to love mercy? You, you might even say, you know what? I, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus, and I want to do the best I can, and so I'm going to grip my teeth, and I'm going to take this person who has hurt me and made life difficult for me, and, and I'm going to do my best to somehow act mercifully. That's good. And maybe that's where you have to start. But the call of God in the end is to love mercy, to want to be merciful, to take even some of the pain that has been inflicted upon you and somehow hope and desire the best for the other. Now, the best for the other may mean a myriad of things depending upon the situation of that person who has hurt you. But the best is saying, I want God, you to come and somehow bring blessing upon them so that their world may be set right before you. So there may be some real kind of justice in, in many ways being done. I, I don't want this to say the kind of justice, if you're going to love mercy, I don't, want to, I don't want necessarily the kind of justice that you're going to inflict upon somebody because I enjoy seeing them have some pain. Our fleshly side likes that, let's be honest. But our godly side the one that ought to overwhelm us, the one we are called to live out, is to love mercy. And so be able to take the one that has brought difficulty and hardship upon us and say, oh God, would you come and would you do your work in them? Would you bless them? Would you help things be made right for them? And in so doing, you will find that your heart will be made right for you. Your heart that stands before God will be made right. Now, there's only, one, there's only two things that have to take place to be able to show that kind of mercy, to be able to love mercy in that fashion. Anybody who you find who can actually love mercy against someone who's hurt them will have these two things in their hearts. Number one, they will recognize that they have sinned horribly themselves against God. And God has been merciful to them. If you don't recognize you've been a sinner towards the Lord himself, 
then you probably won't really love showing mercy to somebody else. But when that stares you in the face, when you carry that recognition that my sin, along with the woman caught in adultery, our sin caused Jesus to hang upon Calvary's cross, you're more likely to be merciful to the other. And the second thing is that you simply desire the best for the other. And that comes from the Lord himself too. And so as we close today, who's the person that's brought you some pain? Who's the person that you look at and maybe you still kind of even get going on the inside because it happened a long time ago? But who's the person that that's, you kind of still battle with? Are you willing to come and say, oh God, I lay this one before you. I really want the best. I want to see justice come. Not the sense of punishment that comes, but I want to see the world set right even for them. And I want, oh God, you to do that by being merciful to them and helping me do the same. Think about that one as we prepare to close today. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, your scriptures sometimes are hard and difficult. And Lord, as we look at these words, they're, they're hard and difficult. It's easy for us to think about us sinning, Lord, and you've been merciful to us, and so we sing songs to you about that, and we uh, talk about our thanksgiving that we have for you because you've done that for us. But Lord, sometimes the hardest part is for us to act like your son, Jesus. And so God, on this day, I take all those people that have hurt us. Lord, I, I, I take them before you. And I, along with others here, lift them up and we pray, oh God, would you come and would you bring blessing to them? Would you help set their world right before you? And Lord, even help us to be a part of it. And so, Lord, help us. Oh, help us to act justly and to love mercy. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.